Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we'll answer on each podcast as we get our heart and mind on Jesus. All scriptures quoted are from the New International Version. You can follow me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you on this day of the Lord, gathered together to commemorate, as I always tell you, the most important holiday ever, and one, one that we get to celebrate on a weekly basis. And today we're going to explore what that means a little further as we talk about New Testament worshipers. One of the most impressive facts revealed in the New Testament is the marvelous unity with which early Christians worshipped and served God. Not only were disciples united in their form of worship, but were united even in the teachings that they embraced. Luke says in Acts 2.42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. One of the classic facts of both secular and biblical history is that in the days of the apostles, there were no separate denominations, and all the faithful believers were in complete fellowship with all other Christians throughout the world. The reason for such unity lies in the complete harmony of the apostolic teachings, which are contained in the New Testament. When Paul went to Rome, for example, he preached the same doctrine that he had preached in Ephesus, Corinth, Galatia, and throughout the known world. Therefore, no separate denomination was formed as a result of his teaching. The same was true of all the other inspired teachers. Being divinely guided by God, they never taught conflicting teachings or practices. Instead, the result was a church identical to all the others established. In the New Testament, we don't read of a plurality of denominations. We just read about the church. In Acts 2.47, for example, we read, and the Lord added to their number, literally church right there in the Greek, daily those who were being saved. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 16.18, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Unity is the response of Christ's prayer, as we read here in John 17, 20 and 21. He said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus said also in John 4, verse 23 and 24, that a time was coming and has now come for us when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. According to Jesus, one of the reasons for unity was to promote belief that he, Jesus, came from the Father. Many people in the world today have grown discouraged because of the disunity 
the confusion found in so-called Christianity. But true believers are unified under the lordship of Jesus. Jesus said that the Father seeks those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. So true worship involves not only sincerity and genuineness, as we will read, but also truth. And Jesus clarifies this statement by defining truth in John 17, 17 as God's word. Let's examine what worship means before we get into worshiping in spirit and in truth. Let's talk about that very interesting Greek word, worship, which is the Greek word proskuneo. It's a composite word. And unless you've really researched it before, you're going to be surprised by what it actually means. Uh, being a composite word, it has pros and it has kuneo. And pros is a preposition of direction. It, it's a forward direction. It's like I'm moving towards something as getting near or alongside something. And interestingly enough, the Greek word kuneo is a derivative of kun, which just means dog or hound. <laughs> so what does proskuneo mean when we put them together? Well, it means to kiss, to crouch, to fawn, to prostrate oneself in homage, to adore, to revere, to worship. The word picture really evoked by the Greek phrase is like a dog licking his master's hand in love, humility, in homage, in reverence, licking the hand that feeds you instead of biting it, right? <laughs> now, there are a few other words associated with worship that we could also define, such as adoration or praise, which is the act of paying honor as to a divine being. Honor is defined as holding someone in high respect or revering someone. And devotion is a profound dedication or consecration. But the Greek word that Jesus brings up when he talks about worshiping in spirit and the truth, and when he talks about God seeking true worshipers, is proskuneo. So the idea involved is us being this humble, kissing Jesus, literally showing uh, our love for him and our humility and our obedience and our recognition that he is to be revered, that he is our master, that he is the providing hand for everything that we do. So as we can see here, worship involves a subject, that's us, and an object, okay, because it's a directional word. We are the subjects, we worship, we bow down, we seek to be alongside our object of worship. Worship is directional, it's directed to something. It could be directed to something here in the material plane, which is idolatry, or it could be directed to the spiritual plane, to the Lord of hosts almighty. Of course, God is the object of our worship, not meaning object in a material sense, but in a directional sense, as the Greek word pros suggests. Objective. God is our objective, our goal. He is our goal. Heaven is not our goal. God is our goal himself. Just like when you get married, you don't get married necessarily to get something out of someone. 
but to be with someone, right? So it helps us think, marriage kind of helps us, us think of that dynamic. I want you to notice the flow of worship, even here in the Old Testament and how this relates to the New Testament. This is a very interesting graphic. It shows how when we come before God, we have to enter some place, as the psalm says, uh, let us enter in his, with his praise, with thanksgiving in our hearts. Let us enter in his courts with praise. Sorry, I jumbled up the song, Victor. <laughs> uh, but we enter, you know, we have to enter somewhere. We have to realize who we're going before, right? And of course, we are in the presence of God constantly. You know, we cannot evade God's presence, but we enter his presence by realizing, by being aware of it. And notice how even in the Old Testament, there was a sacrifice. There was a confession, in other words. There was a realization of sin. Then there was a cleansing that needed to happen, as in the bronze laver. This was like the flow of worship for the high priest before he could get into the Holy of Holies, before the actual presence of God to worship. So a lot of these, this flow of worship is reciprocated in the New Testament in a different way as we will examine. But I just want you to understand that worship is relational. It's not a one-way street. It's not something that is enabling, but it's something that it relates. Think of this truth as reflected in marriage, for example. Do you want to get married to be somewhere or to get something? That would be a very self-serving reason, and a marriage wouldn't really last. Or are you getting married to be with the object of your marital bliss, meaning your spouse. And those two situations are very different and produce different results, don't they? So we move forward in worship, as we see here in James 4, 8. We see James saying, come near to God, and he will come near to you. So this is a directional thing, but James tells us here how, because like I said, you know, God is always before us. So how are we going to come near? James says, wash your hands. Make sure you got clean hands, you sinner. Purify your heart, you hypocrite. So yeah, it requires to be aware. Wow. Okay. Do I have sin? Yes, I do. Am I a hypocrite? Probably. I have to really be aware as the priest had to be aware and come before God confessing and wanting to be pure, to be able to come before God and be accepted. The author of Hebrews also gives us a similar encouragement in Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near to God. Notice the, the directionality of the worship. Draw near. We have to be conscious of drawing near to God. The Hebrew author says, with a sincere heart, the full assurance that faith brings. And he adds a few other things which relate to that flow of worship diagram I showed you. He adds having, in other words, we can do this having had what? Our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Sprinkled with what? With the blood of Christ. In other words, we went through, we offered that sacrifice as the uh, priest did in the Old Testament. We washed ourselves with water. Jesus combined those two things for us on the cross so that now we can come before God without a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. So he is, in effect, talking there about baptism. We need to have gone through this portal that Jesus provided for us to be able to draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith 
brings. We cannot draw near to God with sin on our soul or with a guilty conscience or with sin still stuck in the old man. In other words, not having been born again. But in baptism, God made a provision for cleansing our soul and our body and our mind by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Hebrew author said our hearts are sprinkled. This was an allusion to the sprinkling of the blood done in the most holy place to atone for sin and the sprinkling done with the blood in the altar of sacrifice. It's not, sprinkling is not talking about water because then he talks about having our bodies washed with pure water. That's where baptism comes in. And the priest had to do this before entering the most holy place. They had to sprinkle some of the blood of the, of the sacrifice on themselves and wash themselves so that they could draw near to God. Thankfully for us Christians, this has been accomplished when we believe the gospel and when we accepted this gospel and Jesus gave us his righteousness. Now we have self-control. In other words, we can do this. We have been raised to newness, raised to now confidently draw near to God. But the Hebrew author does add here with a sincere heart. So let's talk a little bit about what motivates us to worship. Since worship is directional, it's not passive. It's not like, okay, here I am sitting in front of my TV, watching a Facebook stream or a YouTube stream or a Zoom chat, and I'm worshiping God. Uh, not really. Uh, worship is directional. You need to be moved. You need to be motivated towards your object of worship, who is the Lord God. And anything that requires you to move involves discipline, doesn't it? I mean, even if you're in a relationship with someone you love, it requires movement on your part. It requires doing on your part to build that relationship. Usually very selfless things need to be done in order to maintain a relationship. Some may be easy to carry out in the beginning stages of interest, but they do get more difficult to sustain unless there is real dedication, unless there's real commitment and sincerity. Hence, the testing of your love. Is it real love or is it lust? Lust goes away quickly. So does idolatry. But love remains. So that's why our main motivation has to be love, as John says here in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. Notice that the motivation comes from God. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God. We couldn't do that. But that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So God showed us his love through this gospel. He initiated this bi-directional relationship, this motivation for us to draw near to him. He was the first one to draw near to us. He came from heaven, showed us what love looks like, what agape love looks like. Before this agape love was known and fully displayed, men only knew other kinds of love. They knew familial love, what it means to love your family, perhaps, they knew emotional love, sensual love. But this kind of agape love, the Bible says, it was shown to us by Jesus first. God showed us his love. We didn't know how to do it, but he did. 
Jesus teaches us to really care for one another, to learn to love as God does, because our flesh is in opposition to that. Our flesh is hostile to God, as the Spirit writes in Romans 8, 7. But only motivated by this love can we live. We live through him, as John says. And that's because Jesus is our atoning sacrifice, as we see here in the diagram of the gospel. This is the gospel that we preach, the gospel that is the evidence of Jesus having come and having set a different standard for the whole world. In this gospel, his blood is spilled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, to prepare us, in other words, to have the kind of worshiping that God is really looking for, the real worshipers God is looking for. He prepared the way for us to be these real worshipers. We just have to learn to be moved by the love of Christ that we see in the gospel. Learn to be motivated. Learn to desire to want to be pure so we can draw near to God. Jesus is the reason. He is the object of our worship. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, we were bought at a price. That is the price of Jesus' blood. And that's why now our bodies belong to him. Just like when two souls, a man and a woman, get married, their bodies no longer belong to them individually, but they belong to each other in the one flesh covenant. Now our bodies belong to the Lord. Now we're not under obligation to sin. We're under no obligation to follow our fleshly desires. No, now we're under obligation as, our, as we are moved by love to use these bodies to honor God. In our marriage class, we, are talk, we talked about keeping ourselves pure for our betrothed. This is a concept that's foreign to the world because, like I said, they treat marriage like a contract and not a covenant. The covenant demands purity. We honor Jesus by keeping ourselves pure. After all, he purified us in baptism. So now we have to keep that purity by saying no to sin, as the scriptures encourage us in Ephesians 5. 25 through 27. Notice here, this passage talks about how Jesus gave himself up, verse 26, to make his church holy, to cleanse her by the washing with water to the word, because Jesus wants a radiant church. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, we see that it is the grace of God that teaches us to say no, an understanding of the grace that we receive right? An awareness, a directionality. I want to draw near to God. I understand that by his grace now, I can say no to worldly passions, to ungodliness. I can learn to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives because I'm doing it to honor Jesus, my betrothed, my future husband, because my body no longer belongs to me. I know that these are very highly spiritual things that only spiritual people can accept and understand. But if you are inclined, if you see the love of Christ and you're moved by that, you can become also a spiritual soul. Be born again to understand these things and to live for God and be a true worshiper. You know, grace is the only thing that strengthens our heart to develop a conviction to say no. 
in view of God's grace, we're motivated by his love. We want to be with God. We want to be with the object of our desire. Think about how motivated you are to relate to a person. If they have shown genuine selfless interest in you, if they valued you as a person and not as a means to an end or an object, this is what we as parents need to show our children so that they can see what it looks like from us and not be fooled by the manipulations the world offers that ends up devaluating them. Children, uh, young people, I'm speaking to you now, don't despise your parents. Don't disparage them because the love that they show you is genuine and it's selfless. It's not perfect, but it is genuine and it is selfless. Don't cheapen yourself by looking to other people or things, looking for attention in other places. You know, that's a cheap kind of attention. And cheap attention is emotionally expensive in the long run. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry offers cheap attention. It's not going to strengthen you. It weakens you. It draws strength away from you. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. He went, he left his father to look for cheap attention when he had the real thing all along. But some people need to learn the hard way. We are deceived by our weak hearts when we worship things on the material plane instead of looking to God. But Jesus shows us what real worship looks like. He shows up shows us what real worship feels like. He gives us real attention. You just got to learn to differentiate it. He provides real long-term solutions as the real husband and head that he is. He strengthens your heart as opposed to taking advantage of it or weakening it as the spiritual forces of evil do. That's why uh, the Spirit will say in Hebrews 13, 9, it's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods. In other words, not by trying to do some kind of ritual, but really by grace, by relational things, not necessarily by what we do. We need to find our strength in God's grace. Remember, grace means gift, God's gift of love. When we feel weak or when we feel afraid, as Paul did, when he pleaded with God to have his thorn in the flesh removed, Rather than our own plans, rather than seek our own way of doing things, Paul said, when I am weak, now I am strong, which is why he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, that is why I do for Christ's sake. Why for Christ's sake? Because my body now belongs to Christ. I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardship, persecutions, difficulties. We like that now. We should like it because we know that our faith will be strengthened. We are weak, but when we are weak, he is strong. And that's why we honor Jesus. Like we sing, right? This is a song that we sing. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I hope I didn't butcher that one, Bob or uh, Victor or uh, Jeff. <laughs> I don't know. My singing voice is not with me since I started coughing and hacking a few months ago. But Jesus is the only God, king, authority, ruler. He is the only one deserving our highest honor, glory, and praise. And what should that look like in your life if you are a true worshiper? Well, that's what we're talking about today. That's what we're researching here. Just think about how you would honor 
someone that you love deeply, someone that you know has shown you selfless, genuine interest in you to sustain you, to love you, no matter what you do or say, that begins with your parents. Unless you learn to love and honor your parents, you really won't know how to honor and glorify God. That's how it is. I'm not just talking to those of you who live with your parents, but I'm talking to us all, even if your parents are still living. We honor them because it doesn't matter if your parent is difficult or if they're non-Christian or if they're dysfunctional. It doesn't matter. Those things should not matter when it comes to the true relational definition of true worship in God. We all at one point in time have been difficult, non-Christian or dysfunctional as well. We were even God's enemy, but Jesus sacrificed himself at the right time while we were still enemies to show us that he really cares. And so his love should be our, mo our main motivating factor because as Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, that it's Christ's love that is the real motivating force that compels us, that convinces us, as he says here, that one died for all, talking about Jesus, and therefore, since he died for all, we're dead. We don't live for ourselves now. We know this life is over. You know, whatever I'm doing in this life now is in service of my betrothed, keeping myself pure as I do it, because there's something coming. That's what I'm living for. So I don't live for myself, but I live for him who died for me, and was raised again. Just like when two people get married. If you keep living for yourselves as individuals, you're going to have a hard time in your marriage. No, now that you're, you get married, you're a one flesh covenant, you live for the marriage. You live for each other, not for ourselves anymore. And so marriage teaches us a lot about how to love our wives as Christ loved the church, how he gave himself up for her, and how should the wife be subject to her husband as the church is subject to Jesus. This, this is real worship. You know, the understanding of worship really starts at home and how parents relate to the children, how children are learning to the, relate to their parent, how the husband relates to the wife. All these dynamics are very, very important in our understanding and in, our, in us seeking to be true worshipers of God. So let's talk about true worship here again. Jesus said in John 4, 23 and 24, uh, to remind you one more time, that he is seeking true worshipers that will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. There is no other way to worship. It's not according to your truth. Sorry, no, it's according to God's truth. And you better find out what that means, because God's truth is not going to come to you in a dream <laughs> or by uh, an interpret or, uh, or by some kind of prophetic interpretation, unless it is in the word of God. And nobody can be in the spirit unless they are in the gospel. So everything points to the word of God. But let's talk about the state of mind in order to be a true worshiper. Remember, God is spirit. So his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So what does this mean? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, the focus was laws, you know, the Mosaic law, right? That's what dictated Worship, But even then, as we saw in that diagram I showed you, there was a flow of worship. And that flow of worship was pointing, it was a shadow pointing to the things that Jesus was going to do. But now that those things have happened, we are no longer worshiping according to the law of Moses, because those things 
were canceled as the Spirit reveals in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, right? It says here, notice in the magenta, the red colored highlight, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Wow. Well, praise God, because we could have never paid that debt, but Jesus took it away, nailed it to the cross. So we can definitely say true worship is not found in law keeping. No siree. Would you be inclined to honor, praise, and admire a spouse who does all their duties? You know, they do everything, but they don't show any genuine affection, any selfless interest in you. I don't think you would be too motivated to love somebody that way. But now, see, we worship on a different plane, not according to the law, not according to things that perish, but according to things that don't perish. We now worship in spiritual ordinances, as we read in 1 Corinthians 2.14. And that's because without the Spirit of God, we cannot even accept the things that come from God. As Paul says here, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God because they consider it foolishness. And they can't understand them because they are only discerned through the Spirit. So you will need to get God's Spirit uh, at one point in time to really worship and really understand what's going on here. Uh, so let's talk about worshiping in spirit and in truth and what that means. So worship in truth. Let's first talk about that. In John 18, verse 37, Jesus encounters Pilate. And Jesus uh, answers Pilate, says, yes, you say that I am a king. In fact, the real reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Brothers and sisters and friends, the biggest battle throughout mankind since man came to be on the earth, since God created man, it has been a battle of truth versus lies. That's all it is. Jesus came for this purpose, to testify to the truth. Truth is poorly lit in this world. Men of evil intent and our own hearts constantly suppress the truth. That's what uh, Romans chapter 1 is all about and how God gives us over to our desires because our innate desire is to suppress the truth, not to testify to it. So Jesus came to testify to it, and he says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So you have to ask yourself a question. Whose side are you on? Okay, this is not a political question. This is not a prejudicial question. This is not a question of ethics, morality, or uh, ethnicity, or culture. This is a question of, are you on the side of truth? Are you on the side of Jesus? And will you testify to the truth in you and learn about it? Or will you not? It's simple. That's where the line is drawn. So our test to see if we are in the truth of Christ is, are we obeying it? Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? So if you believe Jesus is Lord, you believe he came here to do what he said to do, and he proved it by his resurrection, so there's no doubt about that. So are you going to do what he says, or are you going to be a hypocrite, right? It just comes down to that. Will you be worshiping him in spirit and in truth, or are you going to be an idolater? Yeah, that's the question. It's just two sides. So this truth, as we know, 
is found in the word of God. I told you before, Jesus said in his prayer in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is truth. Of course it is. How can God not speak the truth? It's the devil who's lying to you, right? He's lying to you through the media. He's lying through you through all every single channel that you look on social media, unless you're looking at God's words. Everything is a deviation of God's word. Be careful what you feed your mind, or you might find yourself not standing on, on the side of Jesus. Very dangerous place to be if you're not with Jesus. The word, the truth, sanctifies us, as Jesus said in his prayer, and as Peter says here in 1 Peter 1.22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. There's no other way to purify yourself. You need to start by obeying the truth. And he says here, now that you do that, those of you who've done that, who've obeyed the gospel, who've been born again, now have sincere love. Notice where love comes into the picture right away. Loving one another deeply from the heart. You don't know, you can't know what that kind of love is unless you've been sanctified in the truth. If God's truth seems like foolishness to you, that means you don't have the spirit of God. That means you're still thinking in the flesh. You're hostile to God. That means you don't know how to love. And you might say, well, yeah, I love. No, you don't. You don't love the agape love the way God is teaching us to love each other. And the biggest evidence is the fruit of your life. And I think you and anyone else around you can prove that's the case unless you have the Spirit of God. And if you do, you need to work on obeying God's Word because His obedience, the obedience of that is what purifies us and it's going to make us that bride ready to be accepted by Jesus. A sign of that purification, as Peter says here, is the deep love and concern that we have for each other. Someone in the Spirit will demonstrate that. We know that God's Word, the Scripture, we have that. Thank God that we have that. That's our, our feasting, our, our banquet. Every day we have this awesome banquet before us. I hope that you're taking advantage of it. Feasting on the scripture that is God breathed, that is teaching you, rebuking you, correcting you, training you. Young people, you know, you've been baptized not too long ago. What are you doing to train yourself? Are you still relying on other people to point you to what you need to do? Or is something finally starting to happen in your heart where you're saying, Man, I really need to purify myself? I want to learn to say, No, I want to be pure for Christ. That's what you need to be looking for. All right. Thank God, yes, that we have other brothers and sisters that encourage us, that uh, give us that spur, that's that spurring that we need from time to time. But you can't rely on that. You need to take it upon yourself to want to be on the side of Christ and to want to be disciplining yourself, to purify yourself and become that true worshiper that God is seeking. Think about marriage. If I had to be telling married people, all day long, what, the, what they need to do to love each other, man, that would be a job I wouldn't want. <laughs> I'm having enough of a hard time learning what to do in my marriage. Each of us is responsible to really learn what pleases the Lord and find out because it's our relationship with God that we need to uh, purify and that we need to tend to. Uh, and yes, I'm not saying that we don't need one another. Of course we do. We need the encouragement daily. Part of what we do here on the first day of the week is that, encouraging one another to do these things. But 
you need to eventually do it on your own because Jesus is your husband. And take a look at the scripture. It's the only thing on this earth that's going to equip you for every good work. So that's how we worship in truth. We got to be in the truth. We got to testify on the side of the truth. We got to take that truth and study it. Let it rebuke us, correct us, teach us, train us. That's how I am in the truth. And of course, the first step is obeying the gospel. That's what it eventually will lead you to do. And that's what is what, what worshiping in the spirit is all about. Remember, that's the primary statement. God is seeking those who worship in spirit and in truth. Why do we have to worship in spirit? Well, Paul says here in Romans 8, 8 and 9, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. If you're all, all about the flesh, all about pleasing your flesh, can't please God, can't be accepted by God. God is spirit. And if you're looking to please the flesh, you're not looking at the spiritual realm. And that's why you're gloomy, doomy, no hope, no joy. Do I need to say more? No. But Paul says here in verse 9, you, however, you're not in the realm of the flesh. You're in the realm of the spirit, if indeed God's spirit lives in you. If anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. Now, that might sound really scary. I know I'd be terrified if I found out I didn't have the spirit of God. But thank God that you're alive. You can make a decision. I want the spirit of God <laughs> because I need the spirit of God to worship in the spirit to please God. We need the spirit to also understand what God has freely given us, as we've seen before. And as we will see here in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13, it says, we have received not a spirit of the world, but the spirit was from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spiritual taught words. Some of you might be like, I don't get it. I don't get it. You know why you don't get it? Because you're not in the word. You're looking to the material realm. You're becoming idolatrous little by little. Stop it, man. You know, if you were baptized, get in gear here with the spirit. God has given you an awesome gift. You haven't received the spirit of the world. Get in the spirit. He is there eager to teach you, eager to help you understand these things. But you need to take it upon yourself to do that. Don't be a lazy bum, right? It takes, you can't be lazy if you want to worship God in spirit and in truth. It takes work, okay? It takes maintaining the relationship. And I know that some of you young people, you get a little lazy. I know I was there too. It's time to put it off. It's time to get in gear. It's time to take the word of God in, right? So that you can rise above the challenges that if you're not facing them yet, you're going to be facing them pretty soon. How do we get the Spirit? We already know how. Jesus says we need to be born again, as he says in John 3, born of the Spirit. Acts 2.38 says when we're baptized for the forgiveness of sins, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So to worship in the Spirit, I must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of, of, of my sins. And I also need to be persevering with a committed and a sincere heart, motivated by the love of Christ, compelled by the love of Christ, understanding that I need to be purified by obeying the truth. Here in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, I love this scripture. Uh, it says, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You know, God is searching. 
Not only do we find out from Jesus that he's searching true worshipers, but here he's been searching all along since Second Chronicles. This is way in the Old Testament. He is searching for hearts fully committed to him. And if you have that heart, he will strengthen you. And you know that because you've received this strength and you've received this grace. You can testify to that, can't you? In First Chronicles 28, 9, here uh, we see David speaking to Solomon. He's saying, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father. Serve him with wholehearted devotion, with a willing mind. Don't be lazy. Right? Don't, get, don't get your nose, don't get your eyes stuck in the gutter of your heart and in the world. No, with a willing mind, with a wholehearted devotion. Because the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. God knows every single thought. He knows them more than you do. You don't even know all the thoughts that you have in your heart. But God does. And if you seek him, he will be found by you. God is not that far, right? You really want to, him? You really want him to show you stuff? Seek him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. That's the, that's the warning. You need wholehearted devotion for proper worship. You need a willing mind for proper worship. God will expose your motives. He understands every desire and thought that you have because he is spirit and he is the object of our true worship. Don't be half-hearted. Don't be half-hearted like King Amaziah. You know, in Second uh, Chronicles 25, verse 2, King Amaziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but it says he didn't do it wholeheartedly. Uh, we read in verse 14, later down in Second Chronicles 25, that it said that he had set up his own gods, and he bowed down to them and burned sacrifices to them. So through one corner of his mouth, he was praising God, saying he, things needed to be done according to his word. But out of the other corner of his mouth, he was bowing down. Do you find yourself in a similar situation today where on one end, you know, you're here, you're trying to worship God in spirit and in truth, but your, your heart is not wholehearted, wholeheartedly devoted to him. You know, you're still bowing down to the gods of social media or to the influencers out there who, in a sense, have become their own demigods in whatever communities of the world that they represent. You bow down to them. You know, is that the attention that you seek? You want to be part of a groupie of these demigods who have nothing to offer you but cheap attention and devalue you, make you feel worthless in the long run? Or are you going to recognize the God Almighty who created you and who created the earth? Learn to be wholehearted and not hypocritical in your devotion to God. I'm going to leave you with two verses here because God is spirit and we need to worship him in spirit and in truth. We are the circumcision. We serve God by his spirit. We boast in Jesus Christ and we put no confidence in the flesh. Do you have the vote of no confidence in the flesh? Or are you still feeling obligated to the flesh? Uh, the spirit tells us in Romans 8, 12 to 14, he says, look, you got an obligation, yeah, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. Ooh, that obligation sometimes feels strong, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it expresses itself in many different ways. Ah, you got to give in to it somehow, some way. You don't have to. 
not if you're under the grace of God, not if you've let the grace of God teach you to say no. Because the Spirit says here, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. May God bless you in this new week and give you grace as you seek to be a true worshiper. God bless you. Thank you very much for listening. I hope the Lord gave you insight into conforming to Jesus with today's message. I always appreciate feedback. You can send me your thoughts, musings, and comments directly through the Anchor app. You can also contact me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing.